from something that uh, he will cause me to say. You could jot that down, and then you can get the chart at the uh, at the end. And uh, just one other thing, I just I just have to say this. Uh, Fourteen days from now, if you can picture this, I will be at what we call Farm Fair in Edmonton. And uh, every morning during that week, which will be two weeks from now, today even, I will be there washing cattle for the fair. So I'm there getting them all cleaned up. They'll be so singing clean that you could eat off their hide. So that's where I'm going to be two weeks from now. I don't know if you can picture that or not, but... I think it would be good if you could try and figure that out. (laughs) However, we're going to talk about the teen's heart today and what that picture looks like. I'm going to make a statement at the beginning here today. I really believe that our society today would be a totally different picture if everyone was able to um, discern when a person had a wounded spirit. I, I believe that there are all kinds of signs of rebellion that wouldn't need to be there if somebody had addressed the heart, the pain that was in a person's heart a long time ago. And even my experience as a teacher in the classroom for 30 plus years, it, it seemed like my classroom was always the dumping ground. How come I got all these kids that none of the other teachers wanted? It seemed to happen a lot. And yet, for some reason or other, they seemed to do okay. I, I just... Don't know what the deal was. But a lot of it, I think, even back then, when I didn't really know what it was all about, it was just accepting them and understanding that the problem wasn't that they couldn't learn or had the ability. The problem was that they had a wounded spirit and nobody had done anything about it. And so there were a lot of Students over all those years that I taught that I believe had a wounded spirit and nobody did anything about it. First of all, what is going on in a person's heart? And what will we can concentrate on the teen, but I'm going to look at it from a very young age, maybe three on, maybe even less, by the way to an adult. Um, Proverbs 18.14 says, who can bear a wounded spirit? Somehow or another, we're able to have the strength to endure physical pain. And God gives us that ability to, to do that. And, but what happens when our spirit is wounded. And 
I believe that if we knew to accept God's grace at that moment, we would not become the person that we become as a result of being wounded. Hebrews um, 12, 14 talks about that, and I'll mention that here in in a moment. So there we start with the wounded spirit. Now, this is, this is where I found interesting when I was teaching. There are visible responses that we can see when somebody's spirit is wounded. Things like communications breakdown. For example, <clears throat> if you were to ask a teenager a simple question like, how was your day? Fine. What did you do today? Nothing. What would you like to do this evening? I don't care. That's the kind of communication that you will get. It'll be very surface. They're not going to give you anything more than that at all. And yet that's a clue. I wish I'd have known this years and years ago, that that is a clue that something is wrong. What happened? The insight here is, Even as an adult, if we are wounded as an adult, if we could just think about what Hebrews 12, 15 says, is to accept God's grace at that moment so that we would not become bitter, so that we would not defile those around us, nor would we get ourselves all messed up on the inside. But somehow or another, God's grace doesn't come into the picture right at that time. But what's the parent's response? Something that I'm going to say we should never do, but how often does it happen? We tend to justify what we did if we happen to figure out what caused a wounded spirit. And... I'm just going to move ahead a picture here. This is a diagram that I think, well, I use it every week. And it's something that I think all of us need to keep in mind when we're dealing with a a wounded spirit. So when there's a problem, these are three things that I think we should not do. One is to say, use denial and say, well, I don't have a problem, it's all you. You know, all you have to do is just smarten up, get over it. And the other thing is to use projection or just blame. To blame somebody for what you did to cause the hurt. Maybe, oh, I was just tired. That's why I yelled at you. Or I was in a hurry or whatever it was, any kind of an answer like that is going to cause a wall to go up between you and your child. And then probably the worst is to rationalize, to make excuses or to defend ourselves as to why we did what we did. And yet those are the things 
that are going to create a distance between you and your teen or you and anybody else as far as that, that part is concerned. <clears throat> Oftentimes I hear the expression, adults talking about this, and they'll say, you know, just cry me a river, build me a bridge and get over it. And that is just the wrong thing to say. And I know from experience that there are people in their 70s and their 80s, maybe even more, who will go to their graves with hurts that happened when they were a teen or younger that were never resolved. And I think, how sad. Because they're going to have to deal with it on the other side. And it might not be so good. The caution that I have here for parents at this point is, comes from Psalm 15, verse 4. And that little verse, the last half of it, 14b, says that no matter what kind of a promise we made, using that as an example, we should not, um, well, let's put it this way, we should do everything we can to keep that promise. I don't know how many people I've had in my office where somebody has promised them something and they never kept it. And they seem to remember that promise that could have happened when they were very young. It's amazing. If nobody does anything about it, then that's what we call the locked heart. That person's heart locks, and it may stay locked for a long time unless they have the opportunity to hear something that we have heard all week long, how to deal with that wounded heart. So nothing happens. Then we have this inner heart pain again, which is the alienation of affection. So the person who's been wounded is going to live under the same roof, but they're not going to get or feel as close to that person who caused the pain. There just can't be that same connection that they once had before, let's say, the promise was made and it wasn't kept. And then these teenagers will start to become a little bit boastful, a little bit disobedient, and they'll tend to have the attitude, the world, society, owes me a living. That's often kind of the attitude that they'll have. The visible response, they become ungrateful. They really don't appreciate much for what the parents are doing. I remember one time, a 15-year-old girl, she was having major troubles at home, and her dad was concerned, and he even came in to, to visit me, because I was counseling in the junior high school at this time, and he said, I bought her a computer. She should be happy. But she wasn't happy. 
That did not solve the problem. What did that girl want? She wanted love, not a computer. And he got upset when after a week she didn't even care whether she had it or not. And then she ran away. And I have to think, how many people do you know of that have ever run away from home that have had a wounded spirit to start with? It's not likely that they just get up and run away just, well, I'm going to run away today just for the fun of it. I think there's something going on on the inside. So they're very ungrateful. They really don't appreciate the gifts that the parents may give them. Second Timothy 2 and 3 says, you know, God allows these things to happen for a reason. But at that time, we're not thinking about what God's plan was for allowing that person to be hurt. And it's, um, it's one of those times when a person is going to get himself entangled with all kinds of things in the world that's going to mess him up even more. He's going to start going downhill. The parent response, you probably have heard this, when I was your age, da-da-da-da-da-da, you know, I had to walk to school uphill, minus 30, every day. And guess what? I had to walk home uphill, minus 30, every day. A teenager who is hurt does not want to hear that. That's probably one of the worst things the parent can do. But that did not solve the problem for the parent to, say, to, to do that. I just want to interject here. This may seem like a, a discouraging, depressing kind of story today. But I want you to wait until we get to the end. Because there's a way to deal with it. Just remind you, just hang on. There is a way, and it does work. Proverbs 13, 10 says there that by pride cometh contention or strife. You know, if only the parent would humble himself and recognize that there's something that he could do or she could do that could change things that fast. But it's pride that's keeping the parent from going to the child and, and admitting that he or she was wrong. My dad was 76 years old when he died. I never once heard those words from him. Not once did I ever hear him say, I was wrong when I did such and such. And yet I had to learn how to forgive him from my heart. And I praise God today that someday when I get to go to heaven, God gave me a picture that my dad's standing on the other side of the street and I'm not going to waste any time getting across. It's going to be exciting. Well, if nothing happens, now we have rejection of authority. The teen will start to not only reject against the authority of the parents or uh, teachers 
or anyone who is in authority. It could be pastors, it could be the policemen, doesn't matter whom it is. They're going to start questioning and rejecting the, the, uh, the authorities. And uh, we find here there's going to be stubbornness. That's going to be visible response. You tell a child what to do, clean up your room. You know, after the third or fourth or fifth time, you tell them to clean up the room, clean up your room or else, then they'll do it. But you've told them six or seven or eight, nine times now. So you see the visible response. And 1 Samuel 15, 23a says that um, rebellion is the same as witchcraft. Stubbornness is the same as iniquity. And we think, you know, rebellion is the same as witchcraft. No, we wouldn't touch witchcraft with a 10-foot pole. But if we're rebelling, that's what we're doing. That's what Scripture says. The parent response, let's nag. Nag, nag. How many times are we going to tell you to do something? How many times are we going to have these moments of frustration and the teen is going to get frustrated with the nagging so that's not solving the problem Proverbs 18 19 the caution to the parents here is when when a child is offended it's it becomes very hard to win them back if we don't do this the right way those contentions are just like the bars of a castle. How can you how can you break through that? Let's just stop right here for a moment. When I went to university to get my master's degree, which was odd, based on my background. Um, I'm taking classes at summer school to uh, get into the program. And we saw the, the stubbornness. This is our daughter when, when she was 12, not when she's 12, she's older than that now, but when she was about 12, we started to see these visible responses from her. And this was starting to get to us because we didn't like this. We hadn't seen this before. And I'm taking these counseling classes at the university, and they don't seem to have any answers for me. What, how do I deal with this? And so I would ask her, you know, we could tell something was wrong. So we would say, you know, what's wrong? What's the matter? Nothing. Nothing. You could ask her 10 times, nothing. And yet we knew something was wrong. And so we thought about it. So I decided to go into the bedroom. This is totally God. I went into the bedroom and I got on my knees and I said, God, what have I done to hurt this child? He answered that prayer that fast. You know what he said to me? You made a promise and didn't keep it. 
I promised her, promised Heather, that if she would memorize Psalm 15, I would take her out for dessert, father-daughter, in Victoria, Canada's Garden of Eden. Beautiful place. She was so excited. She memorized it, quoted it to me verbatim in a very short time, and then she's starting to ask, so when are we going out for dessert? Um, I don't have enough money. Textbooks cost a lot. Tuition costs a lot. I just don't have the money. From that point on, she went down. We scrambled the house for every nickel, dime, quarter. I don't know if we had the loony then or not, but probably did. So that I had enough money to take her out for dessert. And then we told her that on Friday we're going out for dessert after supper. So we sat down for the meal, and she was finished. She was getting down, and she was getting her best dress on, and her mother was fixing her hair, and I couldn't believe how excited she was. She was just ecstatic. And I was just sick on the inside. How could I have hurt her so badly? We went out for dessert. Had a wonderful time. Came back the next day. The stubbornness was gone. And I don't think I've ever seen this daughter at her age today, 35, become even stubborn or rebellious. She's been that kind of person. She wants to obey all the time. Even now, she will ask me if she can have my permission to do something. And I'm thinking, you're 35. You don't have to ask me for everything. She's one of these that's still living at home. Sad. But praise God that I did something at the right time. Or I wouldn't have a beautiful daughter like this today. I can't imagine where she might be today or look if that had never been resolved. It's scary. If you continue with this, they become the authorities themselves. Nobody's going to tell them what to do. Just like Satan did. He decided that he would put himself on the same level or maybe a notch above God and say, you know, I'm not going to do what you want me to do. And how many teens have I ever experienced in the 30 years of teaching who have gotten to that attitude? You're not telling me what to do. The last year I taught, I, had, I don't know what it would be like now, but in 1992, I had grade 6 students tell me, you can't make me learn my times tables. I thought, I will teach you the times tables. You will learn. No way. They just folded their arms. You can't make me. There was a, that just fits with Isaiah chapter 3. Who's going to be in control? That verse says, the children and the women will be in control. And I don't know, I just know I can speak from the society that I am, where I live, that that's what's happening. I, I, you couldn't pay me to go into a public school classroom today. There's just no way. The visible response is going to be rebellion. 
Nobody's going to tell them what to do. <clears throat> I remember being in a restaurant one time with one of my daughters, and I saw two of these young 15-year-olds, and, you know, am I judging now? Yeah, they, they were dressed kind of sloppily. You know, they had these baggy jeans that were half off, if you have ever seen anything like that, chained from their belt down to the floor, back up, tied to their wallet. And I just had to ask myself the question, who has hurt you so badly that you have to dress like that to get some kind of attention? And Isaiah 14, 14. <clears throat> the insight there is that um, it's basically Satan saying here, I will ascend above the top. I will, um, well, that was his downfall, his desire to be on equal basis with God. And that's what will happen with teenagers today too. They will begin their downward fall. Why? I really believe it was the wounded spirit. Who knows when it could have happened. Then there are the restrictions. That's what the parents do. Now we have more rules. You can't do this. You can't do this. Instead of coming home at 10 o'clock, now you have to come home at 9. Instead of doing three jobs on Saturday, now you're going to have four. And the list goes on and on. That's what happens. And then the teenager doesn't care for that. Um, so just increased demands, tighter restrictions. Proverbs 22, the caution to the parents. He sows iniquity, will reap sorrow. So if the parent is just continuing to do their own thing, they're going to reap some sorrow down the road. And the sorrow is going to be perhaps a teenager that's going to run away from home or a teenager who's going to just be rebellious. Now, what's, what's happening next? Then there's going to be the compatibility of rebellion. Like seeks its own. I remember being in a junior high school and the principal bringing me this young 15-year-old one day, he was going to bring him into my classroom. This is going to be his new classroom. They moved right across the entire city to get a fresh start. And I took one look at him and I thought, I know by noon who your friends are going to be. And they'll be all the wrong ones. And I don't know how he did it, but by noon he was hooked up with all the people that he probably shouldn't have been hooked up with. And um, if the parent knows what to do and then they don't do it, they're going to reap the consequences. <clears throat> I'm ahead of myself here. The insight, Philippians 3, 19. That verse says, 
whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. The characteristics of all the wrong friends, they have these fleshly appetites. They find humor in shame. They have no concern for eternity. So the whole picture that we have here, you know, I like to think I was smart enough to think this all up. But this is what the scriptures are saying. This is what's going to happen if this doesn't happen. The parent response with all these wrong friends, it's called the FBI, the Family Bureau of Investigation. Now we're going to check out these friends. You know, you're not going to have any sleepovers over there. You're not going out with those people. They're not coming to our place. All those kinds of things. Now what do you suppose that does to the teen? It's just driving another wedge. It just goes deeper. The wall may get thicker and higher. The caution to the parents here, Colossians 3.21, that just simply says, fathers, don't provoke your children to wrath, to anger. Because by this time, when you're telling them that they can't be with those friends, that's what's going to happen, isn't it? They're going to become angry. They're going to become upset. If nothing is done about it, then this is where we hit the sensual fulfillment. By that, we have a long list of things that are found in Galatians 5.19. And it just simply says, Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, anger. Having lost all sensitivity, they've given themselves over to gratifying the lower nature because it pleases for a short time. That's what's going to happen. Devastating consequences. Smoking, alcohol, drugs, the occult, the immorality. Just because of a wounded spirit. Nobody did anything about it. And then, of course, the young people are going to defend themselves. Everybody else is doing it. What can be wrong about it? All their friends are doing it. So they try to defend themselves, which is, doesn't work. It just makes the parent angry in their uh, um, defense. In Galatians 5.19, I just read those. Selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murderers, drunkenness, revelries. Ephesians 4.18, who being, I got the wrong word here, who being made, who had feelings, have given themselves over to lewdness, to work all uncleanness, with greediness. And that's the insight here that we as parents need to have when that's happening. 
the parent response, of course, is going to be condemn. Rather than finding out what's going on, which are the techniques that we learned here this week, then they just condemn what the child is doing. And then what does that do to the child? So the caution here is Exodus 20, verse 5, and it says there, you shall not bow down to them, meaning all of those things I just listed, fornication, uncleanness, immorality, all those things. Don't bow down to those things. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations. I wonder how many times there are parents with children that are in this situation who were there themselves. So now we're having this generational thing passed on. Now there's guilt. You know, nobody needs to be told that the, all this list of things that are going on is wrong. They know on the inside. Their spirit has already told them that this is wrong. And so they just feel guilty. <clears throat> they start condemning others because they're feeling judged by other people. And, you know, the, the spirit of that child is, um, they have a conscience, and they, they know that it's wrong. But my guess is if they keep on doing these things over and over, their conscience just starts to die. And pretty soon they maybe not know what's right and what's wrong. And I just pray that there's always just a little bit of light in the conscience that we'll be able to turn them around. And I think just what John was saying this morning, and even the things that uh, um, not Lee, who was it back there, was saying as well, that... Uh, We know when we've crossed over God's plumb line. I call it the plumb line. I draw a picture on a sheet of paper and I draw a line. And I say, here's God's plumb line. He's saying, don't cross over this line in any matter. And I always draw a foot with a toe. And I say, don't even put your toe over that line. Because if you do, there's going to be a consequence. And it doesn't have to come from a human being. It's going to come from God. And they're not going to be able to get away with it. And maybe it won't show up. Maybe the consequence won't be there the next day or the next week or the next month or even the next year. It may be down the road. The visible response is that they condemn, condemn others. And that's where you'll have the teen telling the parent, well, you're just a hypocrite. You're just a hypocrite. So they're wanting, they're pretending that everything is okay when in fact it's not okay. Romans 2 verse 1, the insight here is therefore you are inexcusable. O man, whoever you are who judge, for whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. 
for you who judge practice the same thing. We have to be careful that we don't judge. One of the things that I have in my office is a constant reminder. I have a rock that God allowed me to find one time, and it's in the shape of a heart. It's amazing how much it looks like a heart. A medical doctor and a nurse were in my office, and he said, you know, that does look like the human heart, not the one that looks like this. That's a human heart. It even has holes in it to show you where the arteries go into it. It's even almost the right color. But that sits on my desk. And I tell people every time they come in, this is a reminder to me that I'm not going to judge you for anything that you've ever done or said or not done or not said. Just like the example that John mentioned this morning about the man who took off to Chicago to raise horses. He came back. What did John do? He did not judge that man. He was just going to care. And I don't know how many people have told me at the end of the week how much they appreciated the fact that that rock sat there because they knew they weren't going to be judged. Have I slipped in 12 years? Twice I did. And it didn't take me long to figure out when I did it. And up went a wall. Now, you're not going to help anybody if there's a wall. So then what did I have to do? I had to go through the steps to break down that wall for us to continue. It's not fun to make that kind of a mistake. The parents' response, again, they will justify their actions. He that covereth his own sins shall not prosper, but whosoever confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. Parents will do this because they're being condemned and judged by the child. The parents will say, we did the best, we knew how. Which is true. And isn't it sad that we can be in churches all our lives and still not know how to deal with us. I guess that's why we've got to be excited about the Caring for the Heart offices who are now showing people. I'm excited for the people that they're in their 20s or their late teens that are learning this now. But how sad for people that are in their 50s, 60s, 70s who will say to me, I've never heard this before. I remember one girl, 40 years old. She says, I've waited this. I've been looking for this all my life. And she hadn't heard it. The caution to the parents. Proverbs 28, 13. He who covers his own sins shall not prosper, but who confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. Oftentimes I have parents who send their kids, their 15, 16-year-olds to my office, and their idea is that I'm supposed to fix them. Well, I've been one of those people who, who have done that. I've allowed their teen to come in, and I will spend time with them, yes, but I have the parent in the next day 
And that's quite a, quite a day. I have a 21-year-old now. Can't wait. He's been there. His parents have been there. Now he wants me to have his parents and him come at the same time so that we can deal with this God's way where the parents are not going to be able to get away with just saying, well, I'm sorry I did that. I, I did it because of this and that. That's not going to happen. It can't. And I think he wants it to happen there because he'll know it's a safe place and probably I won't let his parents start to justify. And they'll just have to follow through the steps. It'll be a... It won't be the easiest day, but it'll be a great day. I don't know how many times... I've had that experience with teenagers and their parents in the room at the same time. That's just the way I've been doing it. I, I really believe that if just the parents came, they should be able to have the tools to go home and do it. And more and more I'm doing that because I can't, I can't keep up. Now the heart. See, nothing is getting better. We have the thoughts of suicide. Proverbs 14, 13. Even in laughter, the heart is sorrowful, and at the end of that mirth is heaviness. Even in laughter, their heart is sorrowful. You know, there's fun, I guess, in being drunk. I've never been drunk, but I, apparently there, there must be some kind of fun for a period of time. Or fun in being involved in uh, seances, or Ouija boards, or immorality. But it doesn't last for long. There is excitement in all of those things for a short short period of time. Some, my word from the Bible is hilariousness. But after the excitement wears off, then they're depressed. In the midst of those sensual activities, there's a feeling of being accepted which is what they want. So they find people that are doing the same thing because that, that's going to feel okay. But then they hide in that deep depression, which we call hypocrisy. And then there's the suicidal depression. Proverbs 14. The insight here There is grief at the end of all of that. Didn't do any good at all. So then there's grief and there's sorrow. The parent's response. This will be the words that you maybe saw on the brochure. The parent says, I'm at my wit's end. I don't know what to do. And as a teacher in the junior high school for all those years... I can't tell you how many times I heard parents say, I'm at my wit's end. What do I do? I don't know. The caution to the parents. Jeremiah 21, 13 says, And you will seek me and find me when you search me with all your heart. Basically, what I think this is saying is, This is time 
for the parent to repent. We need to seek God a little bit, a little bit. Like the day I got on my knees and I said, God, what have I done to hurt my daughter's heart? We need to go to God. God is going to be the only one that's going to fix this one. No counselor can do this. Only God. Now what do I do? Now what do I do? Anybody want to come and take my place right now? The solution is now to go back to square one. The day of the wounded spirit. Here's the path to freedom for you and for your son or daughter or sons and daughters. The sad thing is teens become adults and they carry that pain into their marriages. This is our son and his wife. He went into marriage with hurts that were not resolved. And if any of you were here yesterday afternoon, you heard what my wife had said to our son and how that changed him on the inside. I could hear joy in his voice the next day. That same night, I said to him, Brian, I've hurt you in the past, haven't I? And there was silence. And I just waited. Pretty soon, I saw a tear starting to accumulate, started to come down. He wants to hide that. And I said, I hurt you about the time you were age 12. And I don't know if he quite figured out what I was going to say then, but I said, at age 12, you were confused because you didn't know who was the authority in our home. I was one of those passive husband, father kinds of guys that didn't make the decisions. And I don't know how many guys there were that I have taught in a class two or three times a year here in the States, in Michigan and Texas. And every single class, I would ask this question. I said, what happens on the inside when, in your mind, mom is the authority and dad is under her? That whole room would go quiet every single time. And eventually, one guy would put up his hand eventually, and finally he would say, we're confused. We don't know who's in charge. That's not scriptural. The father is to be the head of the home. I did that for Brian. What a huge difference it made when I told him that that's what happened. Going back to the wounded spirit, ways that parents can damage children. Number one, 
it can be a broken promise. And I want to say this. You can make a promise to a child and make sure it's a definite promise. At the same time, there are those children, my son being one of them, if I just hinted, hinted at a promise, in his mind, it was a promise. So I learned very quickly at that time that if I was going to make a promise for him, I better have the resources and everything in place to make sure I could follow through on that promise right away. Because with him, I, I, I don't really want to go down that road as to what would happen if I hadn't, if I'd made a promise and didn't keep it as far as he was concerned. <clears throat> Oh, my daughter and her husband. Last Christmas, I was spending some time with Jason, and he has, he's, he doesn't like this counseling stuff. He, the word counseling just does not do anything for him at all. And yet he, he wants help. He looks to me for help. So we have these kind of spontaneous little times where we deal with things. And at Christmas time, he wanted to deal with some things that his mom had done, which was quite interesting. So we spent some time doing that, went through that, resolved some things. And then at that time, he said, can I tell you something else? I said, sure. Oh, boy. He said, at our reception, as a father as parents at the reception, generally the idea is to welcome the son into the family. Well, I got up and started talking, frivolously, I guess, but he said to me, you never welcomed me into your family. And I thought, how could I have not said that? I would... I never dreamt that I didn't say that. But for him, it registered in his heart and it caused hurt because I didn't tell him. And what do you suppose that did for my daughter? That was not a pretty picture that day either. We'll come back to that. Here, I have two options that we can deal with. Number one... We can pray ahead of time and ask God to show us what we have done to hurt the child. Because the child will not always answer the question, what is wrong? Their reply will be nothing, like I was telling you. Why? Because they're fearful of those big three. Denial, blame, justify. And if we just hint at one of those things, it'll be game over, as far as I'm concerned. And the same thing happens in a marriage as well. You, you just don't justify what you did. There are no excuses that you can give that are going to solve that problem. It, I've had people say, you know, wives will say, he just does not get it. And she gets that feeling because he's got a, 
rationalize something. He's got to justify something. And as soon as he does that, he just shuts her right back down again. Fearful of that. So if God happens to show you when you do pray, then you identify that and confess the wrong along with the pain words. And we have that whole picture. So we identify the wrong. We identify the pain words to go with it. And it's, I'm just emphasizing what we've heard all week. And then you go to that child like I did with Brian. I have hurt you in the past, haven't I? I like that expression. Because you're asking, even though you know what the answer is. And then I told him, I hurt you when? And it caused you to feel. I hurt you, didn't I, when I was not the head of our home? And just saying that, tears start to come down his face. Because it hurt him that I was not the leader. And I told him how it made him feel. First word is confused. Discouraged. Disappointed. All those kinds of things. And in that, you know, then that's full repentance. Genuine repentance. And I, I like that part. It's hard. That's where pride goes out the window. I was wrong. Now, another option is to make a safe place. Now, you might do this with young children. It can be a 12-year-old. I think it could even be a 6-year-old. I shouldn't say think. I know it can be. I remember one parent doing that, going to a 6-year-old and just doing that first option. Because it's going to be a little bit foreign to him because it's, it's awkward to go to a child and just say, you know, I'm, I'm going to make a safe place for you to tell me whatever you need to tell me. They may not be all that excited about doing that because they're not sure that it's going to be safe. But if we do the other one first with a child and we tell them what we've done, tell them how they felt, and we're not justifying, then they're going to start saying, oh, this is a safe place. And then they can go on with the, the list. So we did this with each of our children. We told them to take a piece of paper and you can go write down all the things that we've, each of us have done to hurt you. And then come back with that list so each of us could deal with that. That was when they were teenagers before they left home. Now as time goes on, we find out that there are still hurts that have not been resolved. And that's, that's where we're at today. We're still having to do that. And I think we need to be a little bit more proactive in resolving those, those hurts that they have had. We need to focus on the heart of the child. Let's get our eyes off the problems that we see. Let's get our eyes off the sin. I had a niece in my office not that long ago. Everybody just saw that she was just a terrible person because of all the things she had done. And she, she did them all. 
drugs, alcohol, immorality. And everybody judged her because they were focusing on her sin, her problems. What a pleasure it was for me to spend that two weeks with my niece to resolve a lot of things that she experienced in her home growing up. The idea is focus on the heart. Understand what they're going through. Accept that and care for that. Just something we've heard all week long. I feel like I'm being repetitious here. But I think we have to remember this part. Parent affirmation for the boys. What are the words that a boy wants to hear the most from his dad, more than anything else? And I think this just comes from Matthew 3, 17. That's the story where Jesus is being baptized. When he comes out of the water, everybody around the Jordan River, I don't know how many hundreds of people were there, but Jesus hears these words. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. And my son at our table one night said, you know, I think the man, Jesus, needed to hear those words from his father, which is giving us the pattern. What a difference that made for my son. You know, heaven help me. I wish I was known it sooner. But when I could say to him, Brian, I am just so proud of just who you are. I'm just glad that, you made, that God made you the way he did. And I don't think I can say that enough times. Even as an adult, he's 30. I don't think I can say it too many times yet. He needs to hear those words. I'm just pleased that you are my son. It's okay to praise. I'm proud of you because you can be um, a good carpenter or you did a good job on that or whatever. Those are okay. But I think we need to hear those words as an affirmation, which I never heard from my dad. I took myself to the hills in Colorado and I went to God and I said, so, so what do you think of me as a man? And I waited 55 minutes for an answer. You know what God said? You are my Gideon. I hadn't read that story in months. And Gideon was one of those guys who thought he was the least of the least. And yet God said, I'm going to choose you. You can get rid of all these extra soldiers. You only need a few. Even the military stuff. Just stripped them right down. And God says, with you, I'll be on your side, and we will win. It, it did amazing things for me. I, thought, I guess I was a Gideon type. Parent affirmation for girls. Questions that girls want to have answered by their dad. Um... Questions like, 
Am I pretty? Uh, Daddy, do you see me? Those are the kinds of questions that they have in their heart. They're not maybe cognitively thinking those things, but those are things that are on their heart. You know, and I think a mom can say those things and do those things. She, they know that mom cares, nurtures, loves, all those kinds of things. But there's something that's different when it comes from a dad. A dad has to do that for daughters as well. That affirmation. As a grandparents, as grandparents, now that we know what we know, having been to the caring for the heart stuff, God has blessed us with a second chance. We do have three granddaughters now. And do you think that we're going to make the same mistakes with them? Now, it's possible But I'll tell you, hopefully I have learned my lesson. If I ever hurt little Lydia, I'm going to make that right as soon as I can possibly do it. Because I don't want her to grow up with any hurts on the inside. And I hopefully can help her parents do that as well. Don't let them go with those hurts on the inside. And that applies for uh, Louisa, who happens to be a twin with this one. Precious little granddaughters that we have. And I, I just pray that they won't grow up, get into their teens and adulthood with hurts on the inside that have never been resolved. I miss them. Jesus says, I have come to heal the brokenhearted. He came to earth to heal the brokenhearted. I don't suppose there are very many people in this earth who have not had a broken heart or maybe still have a broken heart But it really is Jesus who can heal that broken heart. If we will just go to him, he will do it. Thank you very much for listening.